my Govanin. Welcome to Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And not too long ago, somebody asked if I could do a video explaining why some Maiar are more powerful than others. And I think the Red Book, I think it was the Red Book, already did a video kind of on this topic, but they wanted me to do it anyway, so here we go. So there are actually at least four reasons why you can explain differences between the power level of different Maiar in Tolkien's universe. And the first and most basic is that some are just inherently more powerful than others, in the same way that some Valar are more powerful than others, and the Valar are more powerful than the Maiar. Valar and Maiar are all part of the same general category of Ainur, and yet we have a clear distinction of, you know, power differential within that group. So it's not really a surprise that some Maiar would be more powerful than others in the same way that, say, Morgoth is the most powerful of all the Ainur, and therefore more powerful than any other Vala or Maya, you know, in Middle-earth or out of Middle-earth. Now that's a really simple thing to say, but what does it really mean? I mean, there's, they all have kind of their own special thing going on, so it's like, in what sense are they more powerful? Tolkien never, you know, clearly delineates what exactly that means. One thing he, that he tells us about Morgoth is that, well, Melkor, I should say, because we're talking about his original being, so to speak, Melkor was the greatest of all the Ainur and shared in all the gifts that they had. And in that sense, you know, he was kind of a semi-expert in everything, but he wasn't a specialist in any one given thing. And another thing that he tells us about Morgoth in some really late writings, and I think these are in the Morgoth's Ring volume of the History of Middle-Earth, he mentions that Morgoth, or Melkor, his role was kind of to be the creative one, the one to kind of start projects and really get things going, whereas Manwe, who was his, as the Silmarillion describes him, the bro his brother in Iluvatar's thought, his role would have been to kind of finish and complete and, you know, put, put the finishing touches, you might say, on things that Melkor got started. Melkor would have been you know, kind of like the the creative genius, and Manwe would have been the chief operating officer, you know, implementing all the stuff that Melkor did while making sure that it kind of fits regulation, so to speak. And you have all the other Valar and Maiar who are hyper-specialists who would presumably have their own input. And, you know, all of them have their own thing going on. So, I mean, you've got really interesting ideas about how the power level operates. And Tolkien even changed his mind about Melkor Morgoth over time because originally he was just the most powerful of all of them. But over the years, he began to think, well, he really needs to be like orders of magnitude more powerful than the others. And we see some of those changes in the Morgoth's ring stuff too. And it's only after he starts dissipating a lot of his power into Middle-earth, and this is where the term Morgoth's Ring comes from, as the Red Book has definitely explained in another video that he did. Just search Morgoth's Ring in Red Book, and you can get a really good explanation of that. But the short version is, Morgoth's Ring is this idea that in the same way that Sauron put a lot of his 
life force, energy, whatever you want to call it, into the ring so as to externalize it and make it functional in a particular way, Morgoth put a lot of his energy into controlling basically all of Arda. And that's why so much of Arda can be, you know, either hostile on its own terms, why he has control over things like orcs, why there's, you know, corrupted forests. I mean, there's endless ways in which this benefits Morgoth in terms of fighting a war against other creatures in Middle-earth. So he starts putting all of this energy into Middle-earth, and as a result, his inherent power decreases such that when, you know, the Valar come to fight him kind of on personal terms in in their process of trying to get the elves to Valinor, they find out that Morgoth is not nearly as strong as he used to be, and that's you know, that that has weakened him in a substantial way. Which brings us to the second reason why some Maiar might be more powerful or less powerful than others, and that comes to the whole Morgoth's ring concept, or Sauron's ring. Sauron's ring gives him a lot of really important power in terms of controlling certain things that he would not have been able to control otherwise. It also weakens him in the sense that if he does not have that ring, all the energy he put into it, plus the control it was designed to you know, enact over the wielders of other rings, suddenly is no longer within his control. Sauron, with his ring, is as powerful as Sauron ever was, plus the extra power that he gets from being able to control anybody else who's wielding another ring of power. Now, he gets to control the Nazgul through their rings of power because he holds their rings of power and they're already enslaved. But the Elvish rings of power, the Dwarven rings of power, those would be additional you know, benefits to him. Now, the Elves, we already know, are wise enough and perceptive enough or whatever to understand that when Sauron puts his ring on, and so they take him off and they don't risk it. While he doesn't have the ring, they do use theirs, but if he ever regained it, they would know and they would take him off. And so he wouldn't gain much in that way, except in the sense that he could kind of undo anything that they did with their rings. But it also does give him an advantage in the sense that they can no longer do anything with their rings, and Lorien, Lothlorien seems to be under the protection of Galadriel through the use of her ring. So to the extent that Lothlorien is protected, it would no longer have that protection if Sauron regained his ring. So that gives him a big advantage there. It also just gives him the advantage of having, you know, all of his power back, and so to what extent he was already more powerful than other Maiar, he would have all of that you know, back with him and therefore be able to do whatever he would have against other Maiar anyway. So the Sauron's ring, Morgoth's ring concept explains a lot and it explains why, for example, Gandalf might have been afraid of Sauron. Gandalf as Aloran, a Maya in the West, you know, when the Council of the Valar is called to figure out what are we going to do about Sauron, he's out there making a mess and we don't want to directly intervene in Middle-earth again, you know, they call various Maiar to be emissaries to go back to Middle-earth and one of them is Aloran. And Aloran specifically says, I'm afraid of Sauron. Why is Aloran afraid of Sauron? Well, because Sauron is innately powerful 
and also because he has this ring that gives him a big advantage. And another, this kind of goes back to the, my, my original point, one other aspect of this is, what is Aloran's power? Aloran, or Gandalf, his main, uh, his main effect on people is not through accomplishing things, it is through imparting visions and, you know, imparting hope and things like that. That's kind of what Aloran does. He's always in the background giving elves and others, you know, ideas of what might be and things like that. And his role in the War of the Ring is more or less to inspire courage and hope, not so much to be doing things in a big way that have a huge effect. And in that sense, he seems kind of weak and not very powerful because his role is not specifically in in the category of, you know, being a war leader or, you know, using magic as a weapon or any of these other things. But in a sense, he's also extremely powerful because his his effect on others has a very wide-ranging effect on the overall scheme of how the War of the Ring goes down. And this kind of leads into a third thing, which is the idea of influence. And specifically here, this benefits Sauron alone in, in the sense that I'm talking about because Sauron's influence does not solely come from his possession of the One Ring. It also comes from the fact that Morgoth's prior work in making Middle-earth his ring, so to speak, or making Arda his ring, gives Sauron influence over a lot of things that Melkor Morgoth no longer directly controls because he's out of the picture. Morgoth spent a bunch of his energy so that he could control orcs, so that various other things in Arda would be corrupted, and all of this comes to benefit Sauron in the end, who has to do very little work on his end to actually maintain and use that. So Sauron not only has in his his inherent power, plus the power that he gets through his ring, he also just kind of inherits some of Morgoth's own energy output because of the control that he now has over the orcs, who Melkor just doesn't really affect anymore because he's gone. The you know effect of Arda being kind of on his side in some sense, being corrupted, which makes it, his job easier in various different ways. And just in general, the fact that Sauron, you know, has all of these, you know, baddies running around that he didn't necessarily do anything on his own in terms of power expenditure to create, but now has just waiting around for him to benefit from. So Sauron is also very powerful just because He's got vast armies of orcs at his disposal that he didn't have to spend huge amounts of time and energy creating. That already got done in the First Age, partially with his assistance. One of the things that we get in some of Tolkien's later writings is that Morgoth might have had this original idea of creating the orcs, but Sauron might have been kind of the mad scientist in the lab in the background doing the work to get it done. Nevertheless, it's still Morgoth who put forth a lot of the energy to make them you know, subjugated to his own will, and it was Sauron being mainly just a technician making it work out. But Morgoth also has, you know, a lot of other things that he tinkers with. So, I mean, he creates dragons, he, you know, trolls and all these other things that are corruptions of, 
Melkor or of uh, Iluvatar's works or you know mockeries of them, and then the things that he you know gets on his own. So you got the Balrogs who are fallen Maiar who join him, and dragons are essentially fallen Maiar who take the form of a dragon, and all these other things, all these bad guys that are on his side are now just working for Sauron or else just independent agents causing havoc among the free peoples of the world. And even though the Balrog never officially is, you know, in Sauron's army or something like that, it still causes a lot of grief for the good guys. And it could have caused a lot more grief. And to the extent that there were dragons, they could have caused a lot of grief. And this goes back to the idea of the quest of Erebor, which we get in the appendices in The Lord of the Rings and in some additional material in the home, uh, the history of Middle-earth, which discusses the fact that, you know, it, it retcons the whole Hobbit story a little bit in terms of the later Lord of the Rings story, and it puts Gandalf's frame of mind in a completely different mindset of basically saying, well... If Sauron ever does make a move, we need to make sure that he's not going to have an ally of Smaug in the north wreaking absolute havoc on everything. We need to take care of this dragon. So, a lot of this kind of stuff plays in Sauron's influence over things like Balrogs, dragons, orcs, trolls, whatever. A lot of that comes without any direct power expenditure on his part, and therefore... He has this huge benefit that makes him more powerful, not personally, but in terms of what he can command. A final point to uh, look at in this analysis is the fact of the wizards being incarnated. And, you know, at first glance, that doesn't seem like a huge deal because, you know, that Maiar take physical forms all the time. You get things like you know, Melian takes physical form and marries Thingol. You have Sauron taking physical form and kind of being trapped in one after the downfall of Numenor. But the incarnation of the wizards is a little bit of a different thing, whereas Melian and Sauron and even Morgoth, you know, have physical forms that they can kind of be stuck in in some sense. Those are not true incarnate bodies. They're not mortal bodies. Sauron gets killed at the end of the War of the Last Alliance, but he comes back. He gets destroyed in the fall of Numenor, but he comes back. Gandalf, when he gets killed in his fight with the Balrog, and Saruman, when he gets killed at the very end of the story after the scouring of the Shire, you know, their bodies terminate, and their spirits, they have to go somewhere, and they're not really capable, it seems, of doing anything. So Gandalf's spirit goes back to... Valinor, and it's only because he gets sent back into the body that he had that he is, you know, he returns to the story and, and takes up his role again. And this incarnation, uh, it, it the, the way it affects their power level is not extremely well defined, but we do get some ideas that their memories of their time in Valinor are a bit cloudy, they're a little bit more limited because they can be old, they can be hungry, they can be tired, you know, things that you wouldn't normally get with a Maya who's just manifesting a physical form because they don't get tired, they're just a raw spiritual being. And so we know that this has some effect on them. Gandalf will even say in some places, like when he's about to fight the Balrog, he'll say, you know, this is a really bad problem and I'm already weary, you know. 
he's weary, he's tired. That makes him less effective at fighting the Balrog than he would have otherwise been, and that makes him, in some sense, weaker. And so the fact that the wizards are incarnated makes them, in some ways, some of them definable, some more definable, less powerful than they would be already, and if they're already less powerful than what Sauron would have been, then they're, you know, they're going to be even less powerful than what they would have been because now they're incarnated on top of all of that. So there's a lot of different ways that this could play out. Like I've already said, the fact that you can get hungry, you can get tired, you can lack sleep. I mean, things like this. Now this kind of gets a little bit interesting because when Gandalf comes back as Gandalf the White you get the sense that his power level has actually increased over what he was as Gandalf the Grey, and we get one little hint of what that might mean when he saves Faramir from Denethor, and it specifically says he shows the strength that was in him, because he just takes, with one hand, he lifts Faramir off the pyre that Denethor had built, and therefore, I mean, he's an old man, but he's just like, okay, here's Faramir, I'm just going to pick him up, with one hand. And Faramir had to have been a fairly tall guy. I mean, he's Boromir's brother, and Boromir, according to some notes that Tolkien wrote, would have been about 6'4". And we don't have any reason to think that Faramir would have been much shorter. And Gandalf is described as being probably between 5'6 and 5'8", which means, you know, here's Gandalf, a relatively small person, lifting this really big guy who, you know can't be a small skinny guy because he's constantly in war and therefore has to be in shape and he can pull a bow which a legitimate bow takes some real muscle to pull so you know Gandalf has to put forth some serious effort to lift this guy or would if he was just a regular human being but because he's a Maya he can do it in ways that normal humans can't and we don't ever get anything like that with Gandalf the Grey and so it's like well some somehow or other the inhibition of his power as an incarnate seems to have been kind of taken away in in the second incarnation of Gandalf the White and in fact he even tells Aragorn Legolas and Gimli there's no weapon you have that can hurt me now does he mean that in the sense of anything you try to do I can stop or does he literally mean you could hit me with your sword all day long and it wouldn't matter is Gandalf the White an unincarnated, un, un, unincarnated Maya at this point? Is he only manifesting the body? No, because we do have his words to Gwaihir. When Gwaihir takes him from the mountain after his return, you know, he says, I feel like I could just drop you and you'd float. You're so lightweight. And Gandalf's like, No, don't. I'm still incarnated. Uh, so he is still incarnate, but in some sense, the the dial which was turned back on his power level as a result of his original incarnation seems to have been turned back up in some sense. Now, does that make him as powerful as he would have been as just a Maya without any incarnation? Probably not. There has to be still some limits, theoretically. But it's not clear exactly what change that affects. So, anyway, that, that's another way in which the power level of the Maiar can be affected is the idea of incarnation, and that could be a variable 
quantity, as far as we can tell, based on the difference between Gandalf in his gray form and in his white form. So that's four basic reasons why you know, some Maya are going to be more or less powerful than others. There's the inherent power difference. There's Sauron getting, you know, extra power from his ring. Or, you know, you might even say, like, Melian getting extra power through being able to control the the land of Doriath in the with the girdle of Melian. In that sense, that's kind of like her ring, in the same way that Arda is Morgoth's ring. So you've got this technological aspect that can give, you know, Ainur broadly speaking, additional power or less power, depending on how you look at it. Then you've got the fact that Sauron inherits a lot of externalized power from Morgoth, and then you've got the incarnation issue. So those four things explain a lot about the power differential between various Maiar, particularly as it relates to the wizards versus Sauron. So I hope that gave a pretty good explanation of a lot of the details of this for those who are interested. If you enjoyed it, please give it a thumbs up and share it around. Please also subscribe either here on YouTube or on Rumble or on Odyssey. And you can also find me on uh, podcatchers like Apple, uh, Spotify, Anchor. And you can find me on Twitter at JRRTLore for some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And you could support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.